This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 322, nope, 323, <laughs> my bad, and we're recording on March 29th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. We skipped a week, and that is why I don't know what numbers are. Mm, so, yes, there we are. Yes, I had the cold from hell. Yes, maybe you all noticed. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. <laughs> don't tell me if you didn't notice, because then my feelings will hurt. Um, but we took last week off, <laughs> so Jen could, could rest the voice, and mm. now we have returned. So if you are new to this show, the show works by us taking a lot of sick days. Just kidding. Um, we <laughs> never take sick days, actually. Never. We had a whole conversation <laughs> about, like, we've never done this before. What do we do? So this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. If you would like one of those, you can have one. Just email them to us at your request at getbooktipbookriot.com. Or you can leave them in the form, which is at the bottom of the show notes on the site. They don't have to be reading recommendations for you. They can be for your book club or for a gift or whatever. Uh, If your question is time sensitive, just put that in the subject line of your email or like in big all caps in the first line if you use the form so that we will get to it on time. We might answer you via email. So that's also an option. We'll see. It's always a fun what's going to happen game around here. Uh, We do have a few pieces of feedback. Let's see. Sybil says, I'm writing with a suggestion for Jessica who wanted multi-generational black family stories. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton's novels, A Kind of Freedom, and The Revisioners fit the bill and are both great. Gina said, Gina has two. For Jen, who is looking for contemporary YA for book club, I'd recommend The Serpent King by Jeff Zentner. Trigger warnings for physical and emotional abuse of minors. It's a coming-of-age novel set in rural Tennessee and follows Dill, a high school senior dealing with the fallout of his preacher father's imprisonment for a snake-handling incident gone awry. I second that. I've read that book and really liked it. And for Emily looking for poetry wrecks, post-colonial love poem by Natalie Diaz is so good. All right. I'm going to read our first question. We will hear from our first sponsor, and away we will go. The first question is from Lee, who says, My 10-year-old is exploring their identity as non-binary. This is something they only recently shared with us, and I find myself navigating new waters in terms of how to best support them. I was hoping you could recommend any books, particularly memoirs, by non-binary identifying writers who share their experiences and can provide insights to parents like myself looking to understand how to best support. I would also love any middle-grade books with central characters who identify as non-binary, especially graphic novels, so that my child can see themselves in literature. Extra points of appreciation if the writers and or characters are by POC. All right, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. 
But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Credit Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Jen, non-binary books for children. Well, yeah. So I went, there's sort of two requests in here. The first is something for the parents. And then the second is something for the kids. So I took something for the parents. And I'm recommending to you Gender Queer, which is a graphic memoir by Maya Kobabe, who uses E-M-Air pronouns. Um, It's illustrated by Phoebe Kobabe, which is air sister, I believe. And this is this actually started as a way for Kobabe to explain air gender journey to air family. Like, so it's, 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 I feel like it's exactly what you're looking for. Like, (laughs) it's very much about growing up and being confused about what your self identity is, how to deal with like medical appointments when you are super uncomfortable with your body and are experiencing dysphoria, like how to talk to your family, how to talk to your friends, like, what do you want to talk about? What do you not want to talk about? Like, all of these really intense, deep things that can be very difficult to explain and articulate, um, especially before you have language for it. And so Kobabe is coming from the perspective of somebody who has like been through this, been there, done that, and can now tell about the journey. And so I think this would be super useful. Uh, you'll want to read it first. I don't, this is meant for you. It is possible that you will read it and be like, yep, this is great for my 10-year-old. Maybe not. Um, but either way, I think this will give you a lot of useful context and language um, and yeah, w- ways to think about this and to support your loved one. So again, that's Gender Queer, a memoir by Maya Kobabe. So I um, took the like middle grade uh, path for this question. And this is an interesting question because there are more and more books and novels for this age group about trans characters mm. specifically. Non-binary characters specifically are still a little bit hard to find, but I found one that I think you'll really, really like and that your kid is going to really like. It's called The Moon Within. It's by Ada Salazar. And I would actually, I never, ever, ever say this, but I would say read it first before you give it to your kid because I'm not sure what your kid's exact journey has been. And so maybe this will be helpful, maybe no, but like only you will know that, right? I don't know. So the the main character's name is Celie and she is a girl who is uh, like 12, I think 11 or 12. 
She's Chicana, lives in L.A., and her mother is an activist, a Chicana activist, who is dis- – what part of her activism is reclaiming, like, feminine, indigenous celebrations around being a woman. And so Ada is getting to the point where she's going to have her first period soon. I promise this is relevant. I'm saying a lot of female-specific things, but I promise it's relevant. She's about – she's going to have her first period soon because she's at that age. And so her mother is insisting that she have an indigenous – moon ceremony because it's like important to their community right um and ada's like super not into it <laughs> she, she understands that, that it's like important from a chicana perspective but like does not want to talk about her period or her body with her mom's friends like that's weird to her but so that's the central like kind of plot point celia's best friend is non-binary and at their age there are kids who are like fine with it and also kids who are confused or don't know how to talk to them and one of the kids who is kind of a little bit rude to Marco, who is the um, non-binary character, is the boy that that Celie has like a big crush on. So that's kind of the re- the relational plot point thing that's going on between these three characters. The reason why I picked this is because Marco is also like Marco is also Chicano, and like there is and their parent, their mother, I think it's their mother or their father. No, their mother is also an activist, and so the whole idea of like reaching a certain developmental point and then having this moon ceremony is also important to their family, but they don't want to do it for obvious reasons. And there's this really touching scene where they talk about like, I understand that this is important for our people, you know, and that like this was stolen from us by colonialism. But if I go through with this, it's going to feel like I'm going back to somebody who, I, who I'm who i not anymore. And I think that that specific experience of adolescence having mm. being gender fluid is really, really important to talk about, especially for somebody who's 10, who probably hasn't gotten there yet, but maybe they have, um, but will pretty soon. Even if it's not what their body story is going to be, they're going to have friends who are dealing with all of that. And like having language to talk about it from a non-binary perspective, I think is really important. And this book made me cry. (laughs) And I know this is like, I'm not a crier with books. I will cry commercials, but like not books. But the, the, the ceremony happens and the way that they change it for Marco is not making it about them having a period, but making it about them being an expression of their indigenous religion encompassing both, like all gender expressions and how, I don't remember the name of it because it was, I think it was Aztec, but there's a specific God who encompasses um, all gender expressions. And the community is grappling with this, like, we don't know really how our indigenous ancient people felt about non-binary folks because it was, all of those records were, were taken and destroyed by colonizers. So we don't actually know. But we do know that this was a religious thing that existed, that we did have a god that was all all genders, and that we can use that to celebrate you. Because part of being post-colonial, when you come from, and I like this, I deeply relate to, right? The Filipinos had a very similar kind of experience of being Catholic since the 1500s mm. and losing all of that history. Um, so we don't really know uh, what that experience of being non-binary would have been like. But we can take what we do know and make our culture more welcoming than like this colonizing kind of vibe wants us to be, than colonizers really want us to be. Like we can take our culture, reclaim it, and make it welcoming to non-binary folks and non-binary kids. And so they use the opportunity to celebrate them and to make them like feel sacred and holy and welcome and important. And it's so beautiful and I'm going to cry now. <laughs> but anyway, you asked for like 
specifically books from other cultures. And I think that this is a really important perspective. So I hope you like it. So that's The Moon Within by Ada Salazar. I'm going to stop crying now. Oh. <laughs> oh, go get a tissue, Amanda. It's all right. I, I got know, you. <laughs> kids, yo, I mean, kids get me. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I can't wait to read that. Uh, let's see. So our next question is from Eleanor, who says, I'm looking for a gay romance, preferably two boys and fantasy. I don't like slow burns over 150 pages. And my current favorites are Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets in the universe. And this is kind of an epic love story. Bonus points if the books mention mental illness. I'm just going to keep going. So I have an adult romance for you. When you said boys, I was like, do you mean teenagers? And you gave a lot of (laughs) YA. You gave YA examples, but like, I really want you to read this one. So here we are. It's The Remaking of Corbin Whale by Rowan Parrish. I will give content warnings for bullying and ableism. One of the reasons I picked this is because this does feature a character who is struggling with neurodivergence. So there are two heroes here, Alex, who opens a bakery in his Michigan hometown, which is like a trope I am always here for. Like, give me all of your people who want to just 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 want to feed other people. Like, yes, I'm here for it. Um, and then Corbin is like the local town weirdo. He is a, he's like really people are very dismissive of him. He does get bullied, like even as a grown man by some of the other people in town. Um, And he sort of lives in his own world, this own like fantasy world. And one of the things I love about this book is that it doesn't dismiss Corbin's mental world as not real. Like Mm -hmm. it's real to Corbin and therefore it is real to you as you are reading the story and Alex treats it as real in this beautifully affirming way. And the way these two get together is just like, oh, it's so good. It's so sweet. It's so lovely. It's so, like I said, affirming. Like, it's just really delightful. And I think you're going to enjoy it. And I really enjoy Roan Parrish's romances generally. And when I stumbled across this one, I was just like, oh, how how do you keep doing this to me? So again, that's the remaking of Corbin Whale by Rowan Parrish. Yeah, I totally missed the boys part. Sorry. <laughs> so I, don't, I do not have a YA selection for you. Mine is also an adult romance. It's The Magpie Lord by K.J. Charles, which is the first book in the Charm of Magpie series. And this is like Victorian Regency. Those are not the same thing, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Historical fantasy. And it's about an earl, an earl named Lucian. All earls should be named Lucian. I feel mm-hmm. like that's correct. An earl named Lucian who has lived in China for good on like two decades. Does not get along with his family. Not here for it. Has left. Totally left. But then he finds out that his father and brother both have died under mysterious circumstances. And like, oops, now you're the earl again. So you should probably come home and deal with all this stuff. And he's like, do I have to? Ah, fine. So he comes back from China. And immediately realizes that his family has been murdered. Like, this is pretty obvious. They had a lot of enemies. Uh, and his house is, like, pretty haunted. Things are not going super well. And so he decides he needs magical assistance. And, like, in this universe, you can hire, like, a PI, like, magical PIs to come help you solve these kind of magical problems that you're having. And so he hires assistance, and the magician he hires' name is Stephen, who really, really hates the Crane family, which is Lucian's last name. is the Earl of Crane or Earl Crane or whatever. Um, and... Really, really has, like, vengeance on his mind when he t- when he takes this job. And what he doesn't, you know, know is going to happen is that the Earl is super flaming, smoking hot and 
that's the thing. That's the thing that's happening now is that he doesn't expect <laughs> that he does not expect the kissing or the smoke and hotness. But there is this mystery to solve, right? Like his whole family's been murdered. He didn't like them, and they turn out to be horrible people for reasons you find out. You know things that they did to the magician to Stephen. But still, it's like a thing to solve because it's not going away. Like it's starting to the the curse or whatever it is, the thing, the magical assault that's happening on the Crane family is now affecting Lucian, who himself is not a bad guy and has been gone for this whole time. So like he was not participating in this family's shenanigans. Um, so there's a mystery to solve. There's magic happening. There's m- lots of kissing. It's not just kissing. Look, this is a pretty spicy book on a on a flame scale. It's like. I don't know. Habanero? What's the hot ghost pepper? What's the hottest pepper? Uh, I can't even think of it. It's a ghost pepper, ghost I think. It's ghost hot. pepper, yeah. Yeah. It's like not erotica, but it's Maybe there. the Scottish fold anyway. One of those. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to Google it. Isn't that a cat? Oh, yeah, you're right. It's, there's like a Scottish <laughs> pepper that's really... Scotch bonnet. That's what it is. Uh, yes. I'm just over here mixing up peppers and cats. It's fine. <laughs> is it a vegetable or is it a cat? <laughs> Show title. <laughs> Anyway, um, so there's a lot going on here. It's very, um, like, the magic in this reminds me a little bit of Naomi Novak, like that kind of earthy, gritty, like blood bones kind of magic, not like ethereal and fancy and sparkly and nice. This is like grit kind of, which I love, elemental, like that kind of magic. I love that kind of magic. So there's a lot going on here, but it's super, super fun. So that's The Magpie Lord by K.J. Charles. All right. Question three is from Marina, who says, I'm currently learning Korean, so of course I've developed an interest in Asian cultures and history. I've read The Calligrapher's Daughter and Pachinko, but I want to step out of that specific time period, which is like World War II and the division of Korea, and expand to China and Japan. I've been really struggling to find books in translation, so if you could help me with that, I would be so grateful. I'm open to any kind of fantasy or magical realism, all that good stuff, contemporary, historical, and literary fiction. I'd rather if it were super, super light on the romance and no nonfiction, please. All right, what you got? I took uh, a Japan tack on this, and I am giving you Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata, translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori. This is contemporary fiction um, in, like, con- well, contemporary fiction in contemporary Japan. It's contemporary. Did I mention? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's about a woman named Keiko who is in her mid-30s, and she is not doing the thing that she's supposed to be doing. She's been working at the same convenience store for like 18 years and she is perfectly happy doing that. She It's orderly. She knows what's of ex- what's expected of her and she's like perfectly fine with that. But, you know, everybody else is like, you should get a boyfriend. You should get married. You should get a different job. Like, you should do other things. You should do all these things. Um, and she's just like, why? I don't want to. That's not how I'm, you know, it's not. And she is is also uh, like probably on the spectrum. I don't want to visit my own diagnosis on neurodivergent. We'll say neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. And then one day, a very cynical uh, and alienated young man comes to work in the store and, like, is breaking all the rules and not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And Keiko is just like, I have got to figure you out. Um, and you get her, you know, interactions with the customers, with her coworkers, um, trying to deal with, like, yeah, this pressure to conform when she just has no interest or desire to. She just wants to be left alone to live her life. Um, and it's very much like a slice of, like, you know, modern like Japanese convenience store you know situation which I think is a really cool thing from like an outside perspective to like see that because you know we all have our favorite 
convenience store, right? Like that's that's mm. a thing. And I love getting to see this in somewhere that's just completely not where I live. And also, you know, Keiko's an amazing character and I think you'll really enjoy this. So again, that's Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata, uh, translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori. All right. I Mine is not in translation, but it hits all of the other points that you were asking for. So I went with it anyway. It's Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeline Tian. And this is a work of Chinese historical fiction and also a little bit, some of it is in like modern um, Vancouver. Uh, and it's about two girls, Marie and Ai Ming. Marie lives in Vancouver with her mom. And like one day at their doorstep appears Ai Ming, who is a young girl from China who uh, is says that she's a relative and is asking for like refuge um, after the Tiananmen Square student protests. She's like fled China, fled the country. And she's brought with her a bunch of her like family records, a bunch of their family records because they're related. Um, and together, the two of them, Marie and Aiming, kind of sit down to put piece together this very fragmented story of their family history. And so the book jumps back and forth between them doing that in the modern day in Vancouver and like their actual family history. So it starts in, I think it's 1949. It's right after World War II has ended, goes through the Chinese Revolution, um, through the Cultural Revolution, um, and up to the protests, the student protests in Tiananmen Square, which some of us are old enough to remember uh, mm. watching on TV. And so you get the stories of their two fathers, mostly. Uh, one of them was a pianist and one of them was a composer. The other was a composer. And you're seeing how their lives were completely torn apart and destroyed via the Cultural Revolution uh, and then everything that happened after. So I don't know. I took a couple of Chinese history classes in college, and that was the only time I'd ever had any real exposure to this time period in Chinese history. I didn't really know anything about Mao or the Cultural Revolution or what happened after that uh, in Chinese history. So that's why I picked it, because I think despite the fact that it's like the most populous country on the planet, people here don't really know a ton about what mm. actually has happened in that country or like how it's affected the people who live there um, and who have had to flee. So, um, yeah, I think that this is a really good pick for someone who's interested in the history of the area, especially if you're trying to avoid World War II, because it does feel like that's all you get uh, when it comes to historical fiction coming mm. out of different Asian countries. So that's Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeline Tian. All right. Our next question is from Tina, who says, I'm looking for something to read in the style of You've Got Mail. You know the type. Person A knows person B only through email, text, letters, whatever. Or do they? And end <laughs> up developing a great relationship. I don't want pure epistolary. I enjoy story mixed with epistolary-esque communication. I have read Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. Attachments. Tell me three things. Alex, approximately. And P.S. I like you. So I'm going to, again, Book Chestnut, Red, White, and Royal mm -hmm. Blue by Casey McQuiston, yes. which we have not <laughs> talked about in a hot minute. <laughs> Putting on my Amanda hat for a moment here. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought of this one because it is such a good mix of epistolate like emails and texts and actual interactions. And this flips the script a little bit. It's not like they only know each other initially through, you know, written communication. Instead, our main characters are Alex, who is the son of the American president, and um, Henry, who is a, like, literal British prince. And they, like, get in a fight. 
at a, you know, a, an occasion and the paparazzi get photos of it and it's a PR nightmare and all of the respective, you know, grown-ups, like grown-er-ups um, and their family are like, you have to fix this. Like, this is a PR nightmare. You will pretend to be friends on Instagram. So help me God. And so they are like forced to do this fake friendship thing, but then they start to catch feelings. There's a lot of chemistry and they start to get to know each other more because obviously this is like a cross-Atlantic situation. Uh, so they get to know each other more through these texts and emails, as well as through these very, you know, choreographed um, outings together to prove that, like, really everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Uh, except there's a lot to see here, if you know what I mean. Ay. Um Anyway, it's delightful and charming. And I love these two characters. And I really did love the written communications that are interspersed through the story. So again, that's Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. I picked Hold Me by Courtney Milan, which is one of my favorite romances ever. Such a good pick. So much. Such a good it's, pick. Oh, it just, oh, okay. As per usual, this is not the first book in a series. It's like <laughs> it's book number two. As per usual, it does not matter. I read this out of order because that's apparently my toxic personality trait now is like reading romances <laughs> out of order. But so this is okay. So this is about Maria and Jay. Jay is a scientist and Maria is also a scientist. She's like a PhD student, I think, or she's in school, but she is has a um, a blog that's like the weirdest blog I've ever heard of. It's about the apocalypse and very like mathematically analyzing the likelihood of various apocalypse scenarios. So you can imagine that her like her niche is small, right? She's got a little little niche of people who are very interested in looking at apocalypses through this very particular lens. And one of the members of her audience, a commenter who like leaves her comments, obviously, because that's how commenters work, um, is like thoughtful and interesting. And she takes a shine to him. They start communicating via text and email. They develop this whole just like connection via the written digital world. Okay, so that's happening online. In real life, uh, Maria has met Jay because Jay works at the same lab as her brother and hates him. He's a complete ding dong. He's so mean to her. Like the, the first, the scene where they first meet is like burned into my memory because Maria's this beautiful, like tall, girly kind of just, you know, very leaning into the feminine kind of thing. And so Jay, who is a ding dong, as I said, immediately dismisses her as stupid, like a kind of a legally blonde sort of thing, you know, where people just assume that because she's pretty, she's not smart. Uh, and so they don't get along at first for obvious reasons. Again, ding dong. But the more that they get to know each other, the more it's like, it's like an enemies to lovers. The twist here is that Jay is Maria's secret commenter. That So like in virtual life, they quite like each other, like quite a lot. They don't know each other's uh, identities though. So that's like in virtual life. In real life, they kind of want to punch each other's necks. Except then they end up kissing each other's necks. It's a, there's a lot going on. And of course, eventually they understand what they've done, like who they are to each other in the blog thing. So there's a lot of text communication. Jay is bisexual and Maria is trans. And it's just uh, so good. <laughs> I'm not usually an enemies to lovers person because if somebody's – I'm very gullible and like mm. here to be led by an author. So if someone's presented me to me as like an ass from page one, I don't care what happens to them, you know. And he very much is just like a jerk to her. But something about it, I was like, this may, this is, may, this might be okay. It got through my my wall of mm. don't like enemies to lovers. So that's Hold Me by Courtney Milan, which is amazing. And now it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. 
Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, question five is from Aaron, who says, I recently found the podcast and I'm working through the archives during the workday. Um, I read almost exclusively fiction, but I want to branch out a bit. I'm a huge Maggie Nelson fan, particularly The Argonauts and The Red Parts, and I'm looking for more super readable nonfiction. I also really enjoyed Roxane Gay's Hunger and Miriam Gerba's Mean. I like genre-bending nonfiction, so any combo of memoir, true crime, cultural criticism, anything else um, is interesting, and I prefer women and non-binary authors. Any recommendations? All right, Jen. Yes, so many recommendations, but I had to pick one. So we're going with White Magic by Alyssa Washuda, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> I will give content warnings. This book comes with a lot. Intimate partner violence, uh, PTSD, ableism, racism, and disordered drug use. Washuda has been through a lot of things. She is of Native ancestry. She has had very abusive relationships. She was misdiagnosed for bipolar disorder instead of actually being diagnosed with PTSD, which would have been the correct diagnosis. And so she has been like struggling with her mental health and her physical health and her romantic health, like all of the things for a long time. And this is an essay collection that's really interesting because it is so, first of all, it is so meta. Like each section has like 
a meta text about how essay collections work and are divided into sections. It's fascinating to think about. There's tons of pop culture stuff in here. Like we get, you know, Twin Peaks, we get the Oregon Trail, we get, you know, Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham on YouTube. Like we get all of these pop culture touchstones, which are fascinating. We get thoughts on like the sort of pop culture, which industrial complex, like what it means that you can buy sage and rose quartz and tarot cards on the internet and like how people use them. But is it okay to use them? And how do you reconnect to your own spirituality when, you know, you're being told all of these competing things about yourself and how spirituality works and like, what is your heritage? What is anybody else's heritage? What is okay for you to like? And then, you know, what it's like to be a writer, what it's like to be in recovery, what it's like to just be trying to be out here in the world being a person who's really smart and has been through a ton of stuff. I think this is such a fascinating collection. I will say I had to read it really slowly because it is very intense, but it was well worth the time it took me. Other people might just tear through it. Like, I don't know what your reading experience is going to be with this. But when I saw that you were a Maggie Nelson fan, I was like, oh, well, you have to read Alyssa Wishuda. Like, they're not the same, but they're doing similar things. They're using the craft of writing to really dig into these deep, raw parts of themselves and by doing so like illuminating things about our culture and society that are really worth thinking about. So again, that's White Magic by Alyssa Washuda. I also enjoy a memoir by like a difficult woman, which seems <laughs> to be the thing that you quite like reading. Um, so I picked Blow Your House Down by Gina Frangello, which has a trick warning for violence against women. And this came out last year in April. And I heard nothing about it. And I was mm. so shocked because when I picked it up, I, I'm, when I tell you that I'm obsessed with this book. So it's a memoir, but it's also cultural criticism. Gina Frangello is an author who spent her most of her life, she's like middle-aged, she spent most of her life married and being a, a wife and a mom. And she like worked a bit, wrote a bit, that kind of thing, but mostly was like raising her two kids. Her, her and her husband adopted was it twins? They adopted two girls um, and are like, you know, that's the thing that they're doing. Her husband's a doctor, so she's got that kind of life. And then she loses her best friend and her father to various ailments, like in quick succession and spirals into this really, really, really deep grief-driven depression. And to claw herself out of it, she has an affair. And so the affair is discovered by her children. And she asks her children to keep it a secret for Oof. like... Yeah, seriously, for like a a year, like a long time until eventually she breaks down and tells her husband her marriage disintegrates and she goes on from there. Like it's it's very much a memoir about this, the disintegration of her marriage on the surface. But what it's really about is like, why do women get themselves trapped into these situations? Because her husband is not a nice person. Like he's he doesn't hit her. But, you know, you hear what I'm saying? Like he doesn't mm. hit her. But, you know, that kind of thing. And she was escaping. She grew up really, really poor. She was escaping this cycle of like trauma and poverty in like Chicago uh, and married this man and doesn't feel like she can ever leave and all this kind of just the way that pe- women feel trapped, especially once you're married and then especially especially once you have children. And then she has this really big love with this other man and has to make this choice, you know, that I mean, it's a pretty common choice as much as like, I think this is why the book is not wasn't everywhere is because people don't like to read about adulterers and people especially don't like to be read about women 
who cheat and then are happy later. Mm. Like, if you're not being punished for it, nobody wants to know it. Although the, the opposite is not necessarily true. Like, we read about men cheating all the time. And so I don't want to, like, spoil it. I don't know if it's a spoiler or if it's a memoir and you can, like, very easily Google her and figure out what happened. <laughs> but eventually she gets diagnosed with cancer. Her The man that she's with, her... um lover i'd hate that word her like the dude her side piece what is it i don't know her guy <laughs> not her husband uh, has a whole lot of mental illness issues to deal with he is also married to somebody who is chronically ill so like there it's layers on layers on layers of like guilt and self-sacrifice and how much of your own self do you light on fire to keep someone else warm and like at what point are you the jerk or are you just trying to save yourself or are you both? Like, it's very complicated and messy. She doesn't let herself off of any hooks, but she's also not here to be your martyr. Like, mm. she's not going to say that she's made only a series of bad choices, although she owns the ones that she did. Anyway, it's fascinating. And it's so full of rage. Like, it's just a feminist rage fire hose, which is I'm always, always, always here for. Very <laughs> Roxy and Gay, if that's a thing. But you like what you do because you said you do. So that's Blow Your House Down by Gina Frangello. All right. Let's see. Our next question is from Tracy, who says, I'm looking for some really great historical fiction. I recently loved Daughter of a Queen, which basically felt like post-Civil War former slave Mulan. I was thrilled to find out this woman really existed. I would love more great historical fiction about brave, daring, or otherwise bold women who really existed. I feel like I mostly read romance and thrillers and would love to branch out a bit and read more historical fiction. All right, I'm going to keep going. I picked Maud's Line by Margaret Verbal, which is, in fact, based on the author's own grandmother. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, it's like, it is. She's, this is a real woman. Now, I will say this is not like a big influencing moments of history, historical fiction. This is like a very, like, I want to say quiet but, like, very impactful slice of life. Um, It takes place in eastern Oklahoma in the late 1920s. Our main character, Maud. Oh, wait, content warning. It happens very early on in the book. There's, like, a grisly animal death in very mm. early on in the book. FYI. Okay, now I will go on. So <laughs> Maud, our um, heroine, is 18, and she is uh, Cherokee, and she lives on one of the allotments that, like, the U.S. government sort of parceled out when Oklahoma was became a state and, like, the Cherokee land was confiscated. And so, the, like, her whole life is organized around her family, you know, her brother, her father, and, like, keeping this land in the family. And it's a pretty hard scrabble life. Like, she, you know, they don't have running water. Like, she has to do a lot of, like, manual labor to make sure that, you know, she has the basics. Um, And she's just trying to make ends meet. And then a very good-looking man comes into town. He's got, like, a traveling book library. And she starts to, you know pursue that, perhaps. (laughs) Um, And this leads her to sort of this moment of choice about, like, how is she going to live? Like, what choices does she actually have? And it is so... Oh, it's so immersive. You really do feel like you're there. Um, She's struggling. You know, they've got these terrible, like, racist white neighbors who are, like, trying to steal their land. She's got, you know, complications with her, complicated relationship with her brother and father. There's a guy, um, a Native guy who she's been, you know, seeing that's, like, maybe it's going to be a thing and maybe not going to be a thing. And she just has so many 
difficult decisions to make about like, yeah, what do I want my life to look like when these are my circumstances and this is what I'm up against? Um, it is incredibly, you know, like I said, immersive. It's really well written and I think it will definitely transport you and bonus you like romance and there is an interesting romantic subplot. So that again, that is Maud's Line by Margaret Verbal. All right. I picked Matrix by Lauren Groff, which is based on a real person, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's based on a person. It's just the was this person real or not thing that like nobody actually knows. So it's uh, about a woman named Marie de France who was a poet in the 12th century in France, obviously. Um, who may or may not have existed. It's uh, one of those sorts of things. Like, she was maybe a member of the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine. They think she was a relative of Henry, Eleanor's husband. Or maybe she's a composite of, like, a bunch of people. It's like a very Homeric sort of thing. Like, maybe she was a composite of a couple different poets who existed at the time. But mostly they think that this was, like, a person who wrote poetry in the court and then eventually left to become a nun. And so this is a historical fiction interpretation of that. Like, who would that person be? So when it opens, Maria's 17. She's living in the palace in the court um, of Eleanor of Aquitaine. She's a little bit in love with Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor does not reciprocate. And Marie herself is quite, like, gangly and tall and a little weird. So she's, like, hard to marry off. She's also the bastard sister of Henry in the book. So, like, nobody wants to marry her. And so Eleanor does uh, what I guess you do with, like, a kind of relative who no one wants to marry when you live in a royal house in the 1100s, which is you send her to a nunnery. And so she sends her to an abbey that's, like, on the verge of starving. Everybody's got the plague, like, the literal plague, and makes her the new prioress. So she is suddenly not just tossed out of the life she's known, but is now in charge of this disintegrating nunnery where everyone is dying and like nothing is being run well. And so she spends a little bit of time wallowing in her newfound lowliness, um, but then realizes that like, well, what are you going to do? So she like kind of sucks it up and it turns out she's super competent. She's a really great um, like general of this Abby. And that's exactly how she starts to run it. Like, so then you're just with her through her whole life. That's it. It's kind of like a, not a memoir, but just the story of this one woman from 17 until death and what she does in and around this Abby. You can tell, and this is going to sound weird, but you can tell it was written during the Trump administration. Like, this is very much about women being treated like garbage by people in power and the world being on fire and then being like, you know what, we're just going to go to an island and we're going to shut the doors and no men are ever going to come here because you you don't you all don't know how to behave like you were raised in a barn and you're just not. So she like builds a maze around the abbey so that like no men can find it and all of this kind of stuff. It's all very political. It's a little Game of Thronesy, but it's fascinating. It seems weird to be like, hey, you should read this book about a nun from the 1100s, but you should read this book about a nun from the 1100s. <laughs> I'm not lying. It's also pretty short. So if it's not your thing, you can, you know, no harm, no foul. So that's Matrix by Lauren Groff. All righty. Last question is from Jenny, um, who's says, I'd like your help with a two-part request. My best friend lives across the country, California to Maine. She just had her first baby and I'm over the moon. However, I don't know anything about babies and I'm looking for ways to remain active in their lives long distance. I'm looking for books that we might be able to read together and chat about in our stolen snatches of miles long WhatsApp conversation. Bonus if the recommendations have characters that are both child-free and newly childed (laughs) so that we can both relate to them. Part two, my new near nephew does not love to sleep. Are there some soothing books she could read to him that may have be that may be of interest to adults as well? Also, we're both vets, so trigger veterinarians. Sorry, not like war vet, veterinarians. So trigger warnings for any pet death, please. Um, okay, I'm gonna keep going. So we split this up. I took the this part two one of books about sleep. 
with the caveat that you can't this I don't want to sound like I'm correcting you, but this is not a thing. <laughs> like you can't really like read a newborn to sleep. Newborn at that age, it's just going to be what it is. Like I know it, it's really frustrating and I absolutely understand what your friend is dealing with. I remember those days not well because I didn't like it, but I remember them. I remember <laughs> them. That said, there are a lot of books that are, you know, like board books for babies that all board books are really for adults, <laughs> um, but that are like funny or at least not soothing to the parent, but at least will keep their, you know, your friend's brain occupied while she's reading them if this is what she wants to do. So I picked Llama Llama Nighty Night by Anna Dow- uh, Dowdney. All the Llama Llama books are great. I started with the board books when my kids were babies and then we just kind of stuck with them up to the picture books as they got older until they just like aged out of the character but all of them are about very like basic daily things that small humans and parents have to deal with bedtime potty training like there's one where the little baby llama do our little baby our baby llama is a thing like how baby kangaroos are joeys is there like a word oh i don't know i don't know either i keep just saying the baby llama but the baby llama or the toddler llama depending on what book you're reading like there's one where he, he becomes afraid of the dark and like mama's on the phone so she doesn't come fast enough and like how to handle it so again since your friend has like a new baby they're not going to get anything out of how the little baby llama tries to help himself go to sleep but it's like nice to look at and soothing for the parent reading it. And I think offers a little bit of hope, you know, because like eventually your kid will be old enough to help themselves go to sleep and will be old enough to understand you when you say, okay, now it's bedtime and that kind of thing. So I don't know that there are books that can help your friend with this, but this is as close as you're maybe going to get. So that's Llama Llama Nighty Night by Anna Dudney. Yeah, so I took the first part of the question and I just want to say... We just have a lot of caveats. I have a lot of caveats. Well, as a person who has a lot of of nibblings and Mm -hmm. friends who have had children in the past, you know, years, uh, I have some experience with what you're dealing with. And I just want to, like, say to you that it is hard, but I really want you to adjust your expectations. It's very difficult for new parents to that you just can't maintain the same relationships with grown-ups that you it's just not it's literally not possible I don't think and that's okay like this is this is related to the book I'm going to recommend to you but you want to be very like chill about trying to do book club with your friends like make sure it's like very loose and easy going because I have had friends who when they're up with the baby at night tore through books and I've had friends who could not focus for five seconds mm-hmm. long enough mm-hmm. to read so like everybody's experience of this is different so be and like some days might be I will tear through a book and some days might be I cannot focus for five seconds. So, you know, uh, be flexible is what I'm recommending unto you. And I picked actually, uh, this is a little on the nose, but I thought it would be a fun experiment for you two is Big Friendship by Mm -hmm. Aminadu Sao and Anne Friedman, Mm -hmm. because why not read a book about a friendship that you can then like whether or not you identify with what Aminadu and Anne go through uh, over the course of their friendship, which lands on the rocks and takes a lot of work to put back together. Whether or not you ID with their friendship problems, you like, A, it's very readable. It's nonfiction. So you don't have to like remember characters or plots. Like it's super easy to follow. So if your friend's brain is shot, this is not going to be a big stretch 
And it is interesting, I think, for a friend pair to look at another friend pair and you can get like gossipy with it. You and like, oh, my God, can you believe she did that? Or you can really feel like, oh, my God, this was so I really felt this on a level, you know, and like have those conversations. Um, And it will be very easy to pick up and put down depending on your friend's availability. So like it could be a fun um, read along. And I also think this book gives you language for when a friendship is shifting from what it used to be to whatever it's gonna be, that shift is not something we talk about a lot as a society. And it is really hard to feel like your friend is maybe leaving you behind or you don't get priority anymore in certain ways. Like that's a hard thing to feel, even though, you know, it's natural. It just happens when when people's lives change in all kinds of different ways, including having children. Um, And there's some great language in here about how to wrap your head around those changes and like what some options are for dealing with it or like what some ways to not do. Don't do that. (laughs) Uh, So again, that's Big Friendship by Aminatou Sao and Anne Friedman. Mm, that's such a good yeah cosign <laughs> excellent and that's our show we did it that's it I'm, I'm making I'm making jazz hands as always I'm making hand gestures <laughs> no one can see thank you so much to our audio editor Jen Zink thank all of you for listening you can find more book recommendations at bookriot.com and of course all of our other podcasts live at bookriot.com slash listen please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and thank you to our sponsors you can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Where's Jen? You can find me sort of on Twitter and Tumblr at Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. I'm going through one of my quiet periods because there's a lot going on. Um, <laughs> but, you know, eventually I'll come back. And we will talk to you all next week. We promise. For real skis this time. <laughs>